Hi, and welcome to the Silverline Podcast, an audio version pulled from the video stream we do a couple of times a week. My name is Roland Mann, and I'm the head honcho at Silverline, where we have a great time making fun comics that we think you'll enjoy. This episode is titled Comic Colors. It originally aired July 22nd, 2020. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Silverline Wednesday Night Wham! Hosted by Scott Wakefield. Hello everyone, I'm Scott Wakefield. Thank you, Tim, for that great intro. It is Silverline's Wednesday Wham! And I am here with a panel of experts. Tonight's topic is color and coloring. Full disclosure, this is a topic I know about that much about. I do a lot of words, so we're going to rely on the artists tonight, and I'm going to keep my yap shut for the most part. And uh, let's just get started. We will go through our lineup here. I'll start so you can forget about me. My name's Scott Wakefield, as I said. I am uh, the co-creator and co-writer of Steam Patriots. That is a title coming out soon from Silverline. I'm also helping with publicity for Silverline, and I am the host, your humble host, for our Wednesday night shows. Next, I've got Jeremy Kahn. Go ahead. Hey, Jeremy. <laughs> you yeah. are um, I'm Jeremy. I do, I'm doing the coloring work for Bloodline, which is currently being kickstarted at this very moment. Um, also, I am um, Future Comic. I'm be coloring uh, Cray, which is a, basically a colorized version of a uh, Gauntlet comic title that was put out in the 80s or 90s. God, now. Anyway, back to that. Wow. Okay, and uh, first coloring lesson, this is yellow. <laughs> that's, that's good. All right, all right, thank you. Uh, in my lineup, I've got Dan next. Go ahead, Dan. Hey, I'm Dan Hosek. Um, I'm working with Scott as the colorist and letterer for uh, Steam Patriots. Um, I worked at Marvel Comics in the mid-90s as an assistant editor. Um, um, I kind of did a self-published comic called File 13 around 2015 to 2017-ish. I'd like to get back into it. It was just one of those things where it was more of an expensive hobby than a (laughs) gig that kind of came close to breaking even. So I had to put it on the back burner, but I'd like to get back into it now that I'm kind of getting a lot more into the comic cold again. Thank you, Dan. Tim, you're next. I am Tim TK. I am the associate editor at Silverline, uh, which means I handle the online scheduling and um, just kind of whatever gets thrown my way. Uh, one such project being the production of the Wednesday Night Show. I'm the live producer, so I'll be talking to you all in chat. I am also uh, currently writing another title, which is in marketing limbo. <laughs> All right. Excellent. And Elena Morton, you are next. Hi, I'm Elena Morton. I'm a comic artist, current humor student, and comic colorist for a book at Silverline that's coming out pretty soon, White Devil. All right. Excellent. Alex. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Alex Gallimore. I'm the current penciler for Cat and Mouse, uh, which you'll be seeing a page from tonight, as uh, well as uh, future projects to come. 
That's so boring. All right. And finally, last but not least, Mr. C. Michael Lanning. Hey, I'm C. Michael Lanning. I'm a pencilist here at Silverline, currently working on a future project called The Rejects. In tonight's episode, uh, we will discuss all things color and coloring. We're going to discuss uh, how coloring is done. We're going to discuss uh, really what uh, what a color is it colorer or colorist? Colorist. 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 Yes. What a colorist does, and what goes into uh, the thought process behind that, and and then actually the actual process, and then we're going to also talk about the history and the evolution of colors in comic books and the nuts and bolts of it. Uh, we've got. I don't. I don't know how it used to be done and what changed and how things have revolutionized the industry, made things easier, made things uh, uh, more visually appealing. Uh, and then, hopefully, if we have time, we're going to then get into the the psychology of colors, what colors do for visual arts, and we can talk a little about about movies and so forth. What the color tones and the, the feeling that colors uh, can impart for us as viewers and readers, uh, consumers of that art form. So let's get rolling. I'm going to ask, so we've got um, Alex or C. Michael, uh, whoever speaks up first. Um, before coloring happens, so before any of that happens, the writer and the artist, generally the, uh, the penciler, they, they have a meeting of minds and they say, we're going to, this is, the writer says, I want the story to, to do, I want the, the panels to, to do this and say this. And through back and forth, the writer and the artist come up with what they want the page to look like. And they will draw some thumbnail sketches, real basic sketches. If you've seen anything like a storyboarding for a movie, those sketches can be real raw or sometimes pretty detailed. And then they, when they decide on what they like, they do something like like what Alex is doing, and um, Alex, I don't know if you can expand on what I just said, or see Michael. Uh, what, what were you uh, What were you alluding to? I just what, so once the once the um, thumbnail sketches are done, you get out of you have a piece of paper. Um, I do. Some people, <laughs> some people uh, do they do people pencil digitally? Is there digital penciling? Uh, for issue two of Cat and Mouse, most of it was penciled uh, digitally okay. on my end. But for issue three, I've, I've gone all traditional. So yeah, after you, you know, after you do your thumbnails, thank you. you okay. And generally, uh, you just go from that to roughs. Um, this is sort of like a rough, but uh, since my printer is not working, I've been just using the thumbnails and just going straight onto the boards and it's been working um and then from this point of view like say this is like a finished panel this one's a finished panel then an inker would take that and uh define the lines and make it easier for a colorist to add in color and uh bring it full circle so then yeah so pencils then inks and then yes a colorist would take that art and um, last week um, we talked about one of our titles was colored by hand. Which does anyone remember which title is still colored by hand? 
Divinity. Divinity, yes. Divinity was colored by, colored by hand. Okay. Um, but that's, from what I understand, pretty rare. Uh, yes. In today's age. Okay. So the colorist would get the inked files and then somebody take over. What happens next? Dan? From the, after you get the inked files, um, you just kind of set it up, make sure every. If I'm doing a page, I make sure it's to whatever specs the printer requires the page to be to make sure. I've worked with other artists in the past where things were all kind of wonky size, so you kind of had to like resize a page or move some panels around to get everything. Hopefully, if someone knows what they're doing and they're super professional, then you don't have to do any of that. But sometimes, as a colorist, especially for indie books, you're, you're kind of also a production guy. Um, and then... I think if you ask 10 different colors, you're going to get 10 different answers of what their process is. I remember back when I was at Marvel real early on, they used to color specifically in channels because they didn't want to touch the black channel. They wanted that just to be the line art. And so you're coloring, you, you wouldn't really mix any, you have your cyan, yellow, and magenta, and black, which is K, in the printing process. And they didn't um, want you to touch the, the K channel. So all your coloring had to be in the other ones. Um, but now that I think that's changed, but sometimes you can end up getting colors that are pretty dark if you add too much in the K channel. So, but um, when I set up a, I'll take the inked art and I'll make that its own layer and I'll turn it into a multiply layer. And then underneath that multiply layer in Photoshop just means that it's transparent. So anything that's white, anything under it will show through. That's all that means. And then I would flat colors in underneath on a layer below the line art and um, then I would add a layer probably on top of that of shadowing another layer for highlighting and then special effects I, I work with a lot of layers generally this way if I screw something up I can I don't screw it all up <laughs> so <laughs> that's pretty much how I operate but I, again if you ask another colorist they might have a completely different method that they use when they're coloring so I'm gonna ask around and see. Elena is that how you color or it's pretty similar. I have, like, there's a very specific way we've been taught at Qbert where it's like everything kind of has to follow, but also different programs. I just color in Photoshop, so it's very, very similar to what Dan was saying. But um, instead of multiply here, one second, let me quickly, I'm actually coloring a page right now. So if I just kind of look over at my things, where is, oh, one of my windows is down. <laughs> Um, instead of multiply, I basically, I go through and I separate the line art from the white by first, I convert it to a grayscale file. And then from there, I, um, delete all the color layers on that. So with the CNYK, um, I delete all those. So it's just black line. And then I bring that over. So it's just a line with just the black, not the white. And then I have a layer underneath that that's called flats, but I don't do multiply really. But it's very similar, basically the same besides that little white. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> well, no, that's, that's great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> does anybody do anything different? Anybody have uh, a, a method or a trick that they, that they learned or they, yeah. they follow? Yep. I actually I follow something similar to the uh, high five colors um, guide, basically, where I actually have a script in Photoshop that's based off their script, where what it does is, Similar to what she was doing, where you separate it to um, the grayscale. Um, after that, though, 
basically two different ways. If I'm working off a file I scanned in the original artwork, I don't go to, I actually use, uh, work with it in CYMK, that's like just the color levels and get as much as the, because um, we color in, you don't always get pure black because you get you know, some blues and such. So you want to get some of that as um, far gone as you can. So I adjust the levels, you know, saturation, um, brightness and so forth, or use the curve tool. Maybe I try to get as much of the color gone as I can while keeping the original line work intact. Then I convert to grayscale, where then I try to um, make it 100% black or close to as possible. I then select that page I just fixed up, create a new layers channel. Um, in the um, layers channel, yeah, in the channel layer, um, I go ahead and create a new one. From there, what I do, uh, I'm trying to do something doing it. Yes, channel, create a new layer. You then copy and paste the um, image you just fixed up to that new layer in the channels. Basically, you're creating something called an alpha channel. And that's basically your black plate. Once that's made, once that's set up, you then there's like a little um, option tool on the bottom uh, left of the, um, uh, the channel area. It's like a dotted circle. It says load channel as selection. What load channel as selection does is it selects everything but the black. So then you go ahead, go to the main channels, which is the CYMK, to no longer on the black one. Then you invert the selection. Now the selection is only selecting the black line art. Everything that's not black is not selected. Um, then what you do is you just go ahead and use the fill tool on the new layer, and you basically now create it in a layer simply just for the line art. And then you can color underneath there without um, having to worry about affecting the line art at all. And if you want to do color holes, you can just use you know, the lock transparency option to basically color over the line art and basically do the color holes like that. So, uh, so then uh, coloring is uh, it's like it is way more complex than I, I kind I had this mindset of like uh, Microsoft Paint, where you take the little the little fill can and you drag over and you click and it fills a little spot and um, it, if, if you goof up, it, it fills the whole picture. You can kind uh, of do that with some of the older comics, like the old like um, Casper ones and so forth. Because uh -huh. the line art is so clean and everything's enclosed, you can literally just go in and use the fill tool and you get the whole thing. Fill, fill, fill. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Flatting is kind of like that. Like yeah. Just when you're laying in all your colors that are the basis for the art. So like if you're coloring Captain America and you need you do like use solid colors to as your 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 foundation that you then add your shading and your highlights and everything in to from there. So, yeah, I, oh, but it's kind of like that. It's similar to that, just fill. But that's yeah. kind of the boring part of coloring. <laughs> Those are the longest part. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's and the, for me. It's the least enjoyable. It's called flatting. That's the yeah. first step. You actually use actually people who work specifically as flatters, so you can take on more current products at once. You basically, give the pages to them; they'll flat the pages for you, and then you basically just work. All that the work focus on is then is the rendering. Okay, okay. So, is coloring now? Uh, I, I guess maybe on a, there's there's different aspects of it, but coloring now compared to let's say seventy years ago. Is it is it easier now that you have these programs that you can make your own layers and change everything, or uh, is it, it do you, do you need a, a very special skill set um, combined with 
your artistic skill. Does that question make sense? Rather than being, I feel like an artist with a, you know, with a, either a, you know, a a pen or a a paintbrush. um, Now you need to have that artistic skill plus everything Jeremy just said. (laughs) With knowing how to script automate the whole process. Yeah. Is is it, is it easier now or, 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 or a a diff just different? I'd say digital is far more convenient. You don't have to have a whole setup of tools and like Dr. Martin's dies, but I would say there's a little more, there's a lot more variety with modern coloring. Like, you know, there's just so much you can just take out of the blue and so much like I know as an artist, I take for granted. I don't know if I could pull a like a Marie Severin when she started out in comics, she was a colorist. And just the amount of work you have to do to traditionally color for print the way they were is just it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to process. The only yeah. thing with um, digital coloring now that probably makes a little more of a pain is the digital digital uh, painting. Since you're coloring digitally, everything's in pixels which means if you release the comic digitally, people get to zoom right in and see every little thing you've done. So that actually makes it a little more frustrating because then you have to be even more careful in coloring to make sure you have as little mistakes as possible because any error you have will be found. Oh, that's interesting. I never would have thought of that. It's it's interesting because I think in, in some respects, I mean, as a colorist today, you have to be, you have to be more artistic. You have to have more of a knowledge of light and shadow and how it works and everything because, you know, back in the 80s and early 90s before the transition of computer coloring really happened, you were just, um, you were kind of just flatting. You weren't doing that much tone work. It was your job was mostly to separate planes. So you didn't want to have the same sort of tones on top of tones. Your, your job was to put, push characters back and forth, make them stand out from the background. And, you know, that was really your job as a, as a colorist back in the 80s. You weren't, you weren't complimenting, I think, the pencils and inks as much as you are today. Like now, a colorist today, as much as they can enhance art and make it look much better, they can also kind of ruin art if they go and do too much. You know, they can, they can detract from the, the pencil and ink work if they do too much. And that really wasn't a problem in the 80s. Yeah, I don't think you could... I think you'd have to try really hard to do a bad coloring job in the 80s. <laughs> and I don't think you have to try as hard now. Like, I think you could, you can, you know, if you're, you can screw something up by just doing too much today. Whereas back in the 80s, yeah, I don't think you could. I've seen some people oversaturate comic art to the point where it's like, that's a problem. They'll add K, they'll add black two colors to make it darker. And then it'll just get super muddy and just, really gross looking. I almost, I'm so scared of that. I tend to make mine a little too light and a little too faded looking. And then I'm like, oh no, but you cannot add K to like just flat color. Or if you want to color darker, just add more blue, add more like of those colder colors to it. So there's definitely, I think in the nineties, that was a big thing when computer coloring really got introduced. Yeah. People are just like, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. What you do is uh, put a reference point, a color reference point on your page somewhere, and basically make that the um, the the medium, the um, the the middle ground color. Anything above that color and saturation is be the brighter point. The farther away, far up you go from that middle point, the more brighter that 
is that is going to be. The lower it goes, the um, less saturated it's going to be. So it's good to have one little point on the page somewhere. It's interesting in the first issue of file 13 I did. I it's interesting because what you see, what I saw on my screen is not what I ended up printing. It, like you have to be careful about that too, because I think I did I I went I went a little dark and like pages that were dark ended up being really dark when they came off the press. And I was just like, oh, it's, it wasn't terrible, but it was just a lot darker than what I was working with on my screen. So that's something to definitely be careful about. Oh yeah, I've ruined many prints just being <laughs> like, oh, I'll just tune this up a bit and it comes out looking like I poured blood all over it. Like what happened? Just, it's, it's such a hard line to follow of having that perfect amount of color. It's always good to have at least a, an adjustable layer right below the line art so you can adjust the brightness or saturation to every to all the colors beneath it. So after you print it, you need to adjust it. You just go to that one layer and you fix it just like that if you need to. Yeah. Good advice. Yeah. And I, before digital, you didn't have this option, right? I mean, what, what would you do if you, you – would you just start over the whole page – with colors, you'd have a you'd have the black and white copy, right? Yeah, basically and it's screwed up. Yeah, you would get you would get a, a Xerox on like good quality paper. I, I, this is what we did at Marvel. We would that this was part of my job as a assistant editor. It's really just a glorified trafficker of moving boxes <laughs> of FedEx in the morning and then moving them to other people. But it was you would you would make Xerox of the inks and then you would send them. This is before did like email was everywhere, so you would package them up, send them to the colorist, and then they would color. And yeah, you'd send them two or three of each page in case they screwed up because you'd start over back then. It wasn't like, oh, I'll just undo, undo, undo. Yeah, there's no I just said that they ended up not looking so good. We couldn't do that back then. Yeah. I, I, it, it, it's so interesting because everything you say, all the, all the tools that are at your disposal, you have so much to learn I feel like in the process, because that, that you, there's so much, um, the programs, the, the Adobe and whatever, I don't know what else you're using are so powerful. There's so many things to learn. But once you have them there at your disposal, there's so much more you can do and so, and so much more efficient. And Dan, you're saying, it, it, really, it wasn't that long ago, but pre-email no. being, you know, being able to transfer huge files and so forth. Yeah, you were moving physical pieces of paper. Yeah. That was that was a huge part of my job was going to the mailroom in the morning, coming back to the office with like fifteen FedEx boxes, and then making sure I had fifteen or twenty more to send out by the end of the day to keep everything chugging along. And now I I probably don't use FedEx for anything anymore. I would imagine at this point, like what's what what do you have to mail? Everything can be done. Yeah, yeah. So. This this bit be a good uh, time to transition to so what we have at our disposal now and so much efficiency and how you can work and just undo 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 and I've I've watched that the guys that are working I mean Alex can't he's he's penciling by hand right now and see Michael I don't know if you're are you doing digitally right now or you can we see your screen at all Oh uh, yeah hold on I've watched these guys and I'll, I'll watch and they're they're inking or whatever, and and then just and then just disappears. Whatever, whatever thing they just did, three minutes of work and then disappears, um, and which is pretty incredible. Uh, so yeah, he I, his work. Um, what Don't else? Wonder, sorry. Go ahead. 
I think you don't want to write too much on the undo though, because depending on the type of computer you have, you need a lot of RAM to get a good list. So as you as you're going through the thing, you'll see you get you know, each step you make is listed in the history section. And if it gets too long, it starts bogging down the, the oh. program. And you know, it gets to the point where you may not even be able to do anything at all. Like I've run the problems where I can't even save, I can't even use a selection tool. It won't even make a team all at all for anything. And that's because I've gathered up so much memory in the RAM, a lot of it due to the uh, history, the history function. Okay. Oh, I never I never would have thought of that. Yep. And that's why I have a very expensive video editing rig. <laughs> Huh. I see. Told you I'm clueless. What what else? Maybe we don't have to cover the, the history of coloring or um, an art um, linearly. We can go back and forth. What else is at your disposal now that artists didn't have 10, 20 or you know, before? What 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 is available now that even a few years ago, or you know, you can say fifty years ago. Uh, what what do you have now in your toolboxes? I mean, I think the biggest the biggest change is just how digital everything is. Everything, you know, if you go back to the early '90s, people did color. It was it was it was weird because there was a time like in the '90s when it was there was colorists and then there were color separators they called them but color separators were pretty much just coloring in photoshop so they would take the color guide that someone had done you know with with either markers or uh, dyes and then they would translate those into photoshop and because the color there was such a, a semi pretty new technology that colors didn't know how to do it and then i guess over time by the late 90s and early 2000s it was like if you were going to be a comic color, you had to know how to use a computer. And if you didn't, then you didn't. And that, it was weird that there was that step in between. I guess it was just because there was a transition time when people had to learn the program. So they had two separate people that were doing it. I think that's, I think it was the, one of the reasons why Marvel acquired Malibu in 1994 or five or what it was, was because Malibu was at the cutting edge of like comic coloring with the, the, the computers and they wanted that ability to do that. So, if only we had somebody we could ask about that. I know. Is oh, somebody yeah. mm. about that that would know much better than I would. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that's the biggest the biggest change is just the, the computer itself. I mean, I don't know if there's as a color. Now, now you have computer. Now you have programs that basically color the page for you. You just put the image in and point. Basically, the idea is you have an image. You take little color marks, like um, you want the head to be blue, put a little dot of blue there, you want the clothes to be red, put a little dot of red there, and then you start the program, it'll automatically color the entire thing for you. And then you have to go in and just do a few minor adjustments, you're done. It, that's incredible. Uh, so so uh, modern colorists, uh, it, it, do, the, do the old timers, uh, you know, back in my day, is there? Do you, do you get any of that? Do you hear any of that at all? Back in my day, we had to color with charcoal and uh, blood. Two miles <laughs> up and down hill, both ways. I say, have the blood. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have that much contact with any of the colors I used to work with. Like, there's a couple of guys I could ask that I think, I think most of them learned 
learned Photoshop. So they learned how to do it, you know, the modern way. Otherwise, I think you just got left behind. There wasn't, there wasn't really any room to be a traditional colorist anymore because it was just one extra step that they didn't need to pay someone for, you know, so. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the, if there's old grumpy people that used to color the old. Do they, do they teach, does it, Elena, do they teach that at all anymore? The, the old um, way? Like we do have traditional coloring classes, but they're not for comics like directly. It would be like we learn how to paint, which would also like all the coloring fundamentals that we learn in that class, we can apply to digital, but then we have a specific digital class. So it's really, I hate to say it, but coloring comics, if it's not like watercolor for like aesthetic effects, mm -hmm. it's kind of a dead medium, which is awful a bit. I'm, I like traditional stuff, like a traditional yeah. thinking, but it's- well, not, I'm not on a typewriter, you know, I, I yeah. love- yeah. Of old stuff, but yeah, you're right. I mean, being able to I'm share. surprised that someone hasn't kind of married the two together though and like used an old so I always I, I figured like you could take someone's if someone's a tight pencil, right? You could take their tight pencils and you could traditionally color it with markers or dyes or whatever, and then have the the inked line work and then just make that your black channel over your traditionally colored you know, colors, and then, you know, you could clean it up if you needed to. But I always thought that would be, there, there was a guy, uh, Joe Roses in the 1990s who colored a bunch of stuff for us. And his color guides were amazing. They were like beautiful. And I always just wanted to like scan his color guides and put them in the comics because they were, you know, the, the color separators who are the, pretty much the computer colors, they never got it right. And then nothing ever looked as good as his color guides. And it was always like, I just want to scan his stuff and put it in the book. But they, even that was something where they, it was weird because like, I think Marvel used to scan the line art higher than they would have the colored art in. It was, everything was, it was, a, it was a weird time where people just didn't like scan and keep everything at the same resolution. And I don't know, it was, uh, but I don't know why people didn't think to just take some of those steps out of the process much earlier than they did. Uh, we got a question. Uh, Royal Airships in the YouTubes uh, asks, has anyone ever seen an entirely monochromatic comic, not black and white, but uh, within like the 30 shades of blue? Uh, is it feasible and would it be uh, easier to color or more of a pain? Uh, I would say that I have seen one. Uh, Midtown Comics had a special of Champions not too long ago that was the 30 shades of blue, but I don't know what the colorists would feel about getting that assignment in their inbox. Hmm. Well, I can ask, I can get close to answer now, maybe because, um, when I did work, did some work for American mythology, I did a couple issues of their three Stooges comics. And the point of that was to color the whole thing, like an old black and white short. So the whole thing had to be done in macro, you know, in a grayscale, basically. So, little, so basically, and, Due to how the grayscale works, the difference between you know the um, the foreground background. Normally, you have you know the uh, darker colors in the back front and lighter colors in the back. But you're doing grayscale that kind of doesn't work the same way. Um, so you do have to sort of adjust your approach to the comic page when um, coloring in grayscale, or I assume be the same for the other one as well. 
I got two books I absolutely adore that are monochromatic. You got Shoplifter by Michael Cho, mm. and you got Parker, illustrated by Darwin Cook. And those are some of like my biggest art influences. Those are just like Parker is just one color and then black and white. And it's just such a beautiful, like very illustration heavy looking book. And so is uh, Shoplifter. And I highly recommend those. They're both graphic novels. I think there's more than one Parker book, but they're fabulous. So I'll, I'll divert a little from our uh, timeline discussion here to talk about what, what is the thought process behind sticking with monochromatic or black and white? Uh, why, would, why would an artist pick that? Why would that, why would that decision be made? Well, the first thing I can think of is cost. It does cost down. Yeah, printing colors. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it just conveys kind of a lot more, or not a lot, or hmm, it's definitely a choice that's more like it's an emotional drive of the piece. Like with Parker, for example, um, it's a noir type story, so it has almost that like. Starenko-y feel of just like black and white and then one color but it gives it this like very more heavy tone and with that one color they can choose the mood of the whole story versus like having to be like oh it's night so now there's like this many colors and that's but it's just one color and it's just the amount you put in gives it the the oomph yeah yep. it factor and, and from an editor standpoint um collectability uh, if we're doing like a partnership with a um, dealer or something and they want to give them something special, say you can, uh, you're giving the colors to challenge where uh, we'll get into it later, but the psychology of colors is say, I need you to do all that, but only in this range. And you want to give it only to this vendor. So now the colors are saying like, I worked really hard on this. This is a great challenge. I really proved my skill. They're blown out on social media. The vendor gets it. And now people in that area want to be part of that experience, want to collect what is essentially a giant work exercise, but it seems like there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears put into this one special issue different from all the others in print. Any other thoughts? I think that covered, I mean, it's really just, it's, the coloring you always want to complement. And you're just talking about like the choice of whether it's monochromatic, black and white, or but like just over the overall idea of the coloring is it, it has to complement the art, right? So it's like, if the art's very, very, you know, black and white, very high contrast, you're probably not going to go in and do a lot of modeling and everything. You're going to want your color choices to accentuate what's already there, not to overpower it or muddy it up. Yeah. It, I, I don't know. Does it fall into that less is more concept? Uh, you can, say a lot more and elena you were saying you limit your your choices is and then when you do throw in something it really stands out uh if you if you use a billion colors it's, it's lost in the in the mix but if you use just a handful and and then that one color is meaningful you can it can, it can be used for specific moments i'm, I'm thinking of like schindler's list uh, the girl with the the brown coat uh, that she stood out. Um, 
so the the artistic idea is to you know be able to, to have the impact uh, of of something simple, something and then in, in comics, more. Frank Miller kind of did that with the Sin City stuff. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, so that this is like a comic equivalent to Schindler's List. But yeah, it just has a lot of impact when you have that one color, especially in something that's black and white. That, Cool. Well, I hope that answered uh, uh, Rory's question there. Uh, let's see. So back to chronology of comic book art. Uh, back in the beginning, it was colored. Um, and I'm going to have to, I got to minimize my screen here. I'm sorry. Uh, I got to click here. We had, um, if you guys aren't experts on the uh, 1840s, uh, beginning of comic books <laughs> when did the uh when did the dots what is that called not ben what was it ben day yeah I that was later there were dots before that what was the what was the name of that no the answer we can move on i don't want us to <laughs> sit here and uh, well, I, I mean that was just the color separation process right where there was every I had I, I scratched something from comic comic comicsbulletin.com that kind of explained it better. I was trying to figure out how it used to be done. If you want, I can read it's like three paragraphs or something. Like, take a second. Okay, it says for the first 50 years or so of comic book history, the colors you saw were made up of three percentages of each of the three primary colors so cyan, yellow, and magenta. A 25 dot. A 25% dot, a 50% dot, and a 100% or solid color. Various combinations that could be made up, the uh, various combinations that could be made added up to a palette of 64 colors, though many of them, especially among the darker colors, were indistinguishable and were rarely used. Uh, the black and white artwork, originally drawn at twice the printed size, um, was shrunk down and reduced and printed on sheets of clear acetate. Nine copies were made of each page, one for each of the three percentages of the colors. And then, you know, a colorist would then put down the percentages. So skin tone was 25% magenta, 25% yellow. And then uh, you would color in the 25% one and you color in the 25 yellow one. And it's just, it's, it's remarkable what uh, had, it was the job of the separator to interpret the color guides created by the colorist, breaking down the colors of the page into the components of red, yellow, and blue. Um, so where colors would color green lantern using green, um, he would mark down that it was 100% yellow and 100% blue, and then the separators would do all that work. And it was just like, I, I remember reading somewhere that it was just rooms full of people, but mostly women, that would do all of the color separations. I don't know why they were mostly women. I know I knew a guy that did it in the late 80s, but before everything started to go digital. And uh, Rory pointed it out, and I, I went to the Google machine. Uh, but those dots, Scott, are Ben Day dots invented uh, in honor of Benjamin Henry Day. Uh, he created a technique in 1879 as a way to create areas of color in prints while minimizing the amount of ink used. That's according to mindbounce.com. All right. Ben Day process are the dots that we see in the, the comic book, the classic comic book art where we or the, the pulp art as well. And it, um, Dan, you, you talk about the, the, the sheer volume of people involved 
Uh, and I would assume as, as, as well as the, the levels of work that are necessary. Um, that seems to me like another limiting factor in how much uh, color or how much time you can spend on coloring a comic. Yeah. Like back, back then, I don't know, like when I worked in graphic design in the nineties and you know, when I first started taking graphic design courses in college, we were learning like the, the hand mechanicals and everything. And it's, it just gets to a point where it's like, I just, I don't understand how anyone finished anything in a timely manner or <laughs> made any money before computers did everything. <laughs> it's, it's like, I, it, it's, it's mind boggling. Like how much, like even doing a book that has photographs and you would have to like contact somebody and they would send you slides. And then you would look through slides to find the photos to use in the book. And then they'd send you a print and then you'd have to photo the print. It's, it's insane. It's, it's, I don't know, like I said, I don't know how anyone did anything in a timely manner and made any money doing anything before computers came along. It's just crazy. And so it seems like we keep coming back to, like, I, I feel like, as with anything, any computers, computers are the quantum leap in our, our, our lives. The modern era is like everything pre-computers and then computers... <laughs> It, everyone's lives changed. Um, it seems like it was really almost the same process from the 1800s uh, and uh, till when? The, the 80s, right, Jeremy? Yep. And, and what did you find? You you, you were saying IBM created, uh, what was their a program? or? Yeah, it's or, called a Joy Paint. Basically, it was a program developed by IBM and interface is actually a joystick and this is like a couple, like a, over a decade before Photoshop, back in the early 1980s. I, I don't think it was for comic, but I know that it was done for like freehand drawing, and coloring. I know some of it was used, stuff similar like AutoCAD's used today for insta, um, industrial you know, blueprints and such. Mm-hmm. So, it, so I mean, from then up, up through the 80s, it was all the the, the bende dots and, and and layers and layers of of. Uh, uh, what's the, what's the paper? Acetate. Acetate. Yeah, they would, they, and then I guess they would take each acetate piece and then shoot it through a screen, which would create the proper amount of dots that would have to go on to the final plate eventually, which was used for printing. So 25% magenta, would, I guess, would have 25% as many dots as a full magenta would. And it's, yeah. So. And I know there was a process, I remember when I was in school again, that you could shoot um, like a piece of art with a special camera that would first you'd filter out the cyan, the yellow, the magenta, it would shoot black. Then you'd filter out the black. And you just, so you could shoot like a full color piece of art and get it into its, you know, four component colors that make it up. But I don't know why they, maybe it was a too expensive a process to do with a color guide for a comic book or something. I don't, I'm not sure why that, that process wouldn't have been used. I don't understand. I don't know why having a bunch of people paint on nine different pieces of acetate would have been a more, <laughs> a more, like a more cost-effective way to do things, but maybe the camera and using the camera was very expensive or something, but I don't know. They must've done it for some, like I was thinking back to uh, like for the dark Knight, the first dark Knight in 1986. Mm-hmm with Lynn Varley's colors that must that must have been shot because that that's that wasn't 
done with color separations. You can see, I mean, how painterly that is, and you can see her brush strokes and everything in that. So that must have been shot in a different. Probably for those prestige books, they took the production values a little higher than what they used to do. I would think. I'm not sure if anyone knows. So would that they, be um, would that process you're talking about? Would that be a, uh, a choice based on? economics or, or uh, ease of production, or was that an artistic choice? I would think it was probably an economics decision. Like back then, they were just trying to make comics and then for you know the printing, they obviously didn't care that much about, they were printing on newsprint, you know, so I don't, yeah. I don't think they cared too much about the quality of how everything looked once it was finally printed out, really. Unless like, until you get to when the people start doing more prestige artistic sort of comics. I guess that started probably, I don't know, probably in the 80s, right? I'm trying to think of what a good like threshold for when comics kind of went. I remember in the 80s, DC had their whole comics aren't just for kids campaign in like 84, 5, 6 when Watchmen came out in Dark Knight. So maybe that's kind of when people started paying more attention to production value and looking at them more pieces of art instead of like just disposable entertainment. So there's other, other things you can do now. So the thing that comes to mind, like with a, with a more modern, and I say modern, I mean really since digital later, um, effect, certain effects you can do. Um, like you, if you wanted a, like a sunburst effect in old comics, you would draw and it would be lines and it would be uh I guess it sounds silly, but a more traditional comic book effect. But now you can you can do those crazy effects where it looks like light and real reflections, and, and I don't know the terms for it, so I'm I'm exposing my ignorance here. Well, they do have a, a there's a couple ways to go about it. The first way, obviously, is the um, the gradient tool. Um, but another way to go about it is Photoshop is you know also used for photographs. And so we actually do have a, a photo burst mode as well as a lens flare mode in Photoshop. So you actually add a lens flare to the page if you wanted to. If you wanted to. Sure. <laughs> sure. And, and is, that, I mean, is that common practice? Lens yeah, it depends wherever we're working on it, I guess. Okay. Lens flares were common practice in the 90s for sure. They used a lot. Probably too much, but because it was, it was new like, it was new yeah it was like, but i remember i remember lens flares coming up in a lot of things in the 90s not just comic art but just like any sort of ads or any place where you could add a lens flare you, you did kind of like when the uh, gifts first showed up and people would put them all over their geo city's website so. <laughs> i'm afraid to comment on this I actually added a lens flare to one of the crate pages i was doing Am I really? Am I really aging myself right now? Like, like showing like what a you're so old. I am from a different <laughs> age. <laughs> so old. What? So what's what's the um the current trend in in colors? Uh, Elena, you're hip and cool and with it. Yeah, I was born in two thousand. Um, <laughs> So modern comics, a big thing that I use a lot, and I know a lot of modern arts are doing, are knockouts. So that's another layer over the ink layer that has color. 
So then instead of like having just a black line, you could have like a reddish black line. And it's basically, it gives it like almost a faded, sometimes more pastel-y look. There's just so many textures you can add nowadays. Like if you want sand texture, you can just look up an image of sand and just plop it right down sand. Um, I think it's starting to adjust. It's starting to calm down since the 90s because <laughs> I, I like I wasn't alive in the 90s but I have a lot of comics from the 90s but you've heard of them you've heard of the yeah. 90s <laughs> I'm a collector it's crazy but yeah <laughs> it's it was wild I, but I'm thinking it's definitely coming down but people are also making it almost look photorealistic yeah um like and some people with that we'll even just like take a picture from a background and make it blurry and put that as the background which I think is horrible yeah. I think those people are cheaters and they need to stop <laughs> but yeah there's a lot more like little ways people are trying to make um like their lives easier while still making the artwork look good mm-hmm. and very photorealistic which can be good, but sometimes it's like, it's art and you need to keep it art. Yeah. Don't try to, if it was a pictures, just take pictures and put them in a comic. But, you know, yeah, I don't know if that explained anything oh, except for my yeah. hatred of. Right. Dan's comment, I love it, but the, the early days of designing your own web page when you'd have a, you'd have the dancing Jesus and the. Uh, the hamsters and the flames and the yeah. uh, one of that's black to look up the Space Jam website still up there. So yeah, yeah. I think I, that, that's the problem. It's like all of it when you realize because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Exactly. Yes. And I think it's that's a hard impulse to control sometimes. And all of a sudden you have all these cool new things you can do, and it's like you want to do all of them, but you have to like pump the pump the brakes a little bit. I think. Again, so for the guy who did Jesus riding a dinosaur as this miniseries, he should absolutely continue that. <laughs> we need more of that. Yes. <laughs> I know one of the big things right now is since you have iPads and you know in your phones, you can still technically color and draw while on the go. Mm-hmm. I know plenty of artists still do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Tommy says uh, he he takes his tablet to conventions and and he you can show you can put it up on this big screen let everybody see exactly what you're doing it's it's, it's really cool and you're not you're just you're just taking a tablet right and uh use it is there a stylus yeah you can get stylus for it you can get styluses that are basically shaped like paintbrushes if you want that's cool and if you want to get real fancy buy yourself a little hologram projector and basically project the image on your computer as you're drawing it is that a is that a yes, thing? Yes, it is. It is a thing. <laughs> okay, uh, I, I see. I'm 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 learning. I had no idea. That's incredible. So yes, uh, now we have hologram projectors, and I don't <laughs> think uh, the comic pre World War II comic book artists and colorists had anything like <laughs> like that. So. And what has been the evolution, not of the technology and the how, but the, the style? We've talked about you know, what's popular now and what, what, we could have, what we could do in the 90s just because we could. Um, 
way back when it was a matter of efficiency. If you were churning out comic book after comic book after comic book, and even the writing style, we have the, they say the Marvel style of writing, but Stan and Jack were just making comic books. Same thing was true with art, right? You, you, you could only put so much effort into the, the inks and the colors before you had to move on to the next. Um, so what has changed style-wise uh, because uh, out of necessity or just style and art since early days of comics to today? And I'm talking like use of primary colors, um, use of, of, of different tones and shades and so forth. We're focusing on like um, um, web comics type stuff or print. So you have the RGB versus CMYK, and the RGB you get a wider spectrum. Go just if you're gonna if, either one. If you want to talk about print, go for it. Talk about digital, go for it. Well, I was thinking, I guess we'll go to um, web because basically, if you're working on the for specifically web comics or things that are gonna be digital first. If you work in RGB, you have a much wider range or much wider spectrum of colors to use. And um, well, we, you know, if you're doing printing, obviously you're much more limited. But with that wider range, you can get much more saturated colors, much more darker colors, and they will display. I mean, the boundaries have to be contaminated on each side, but you can more or less get a um, much, I guess, wider palette and much more expressions you can show through the colors as a result. The digitally. If, you're, yeah. if it's all if yeah. it's all digital, okay, yeah. okay, and so print that with with coloring nowadays as opposed to you know going back 30, 40 years. I think it's 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 a much more important part. Like it, it's a it's a much more uh, it's much more part of the art than it was. I, I think forty years ago it was more of an afterthought. It was just something you had to make sure Captain America's colors were right, Spider Man's colors were right. And other people's, you know, everything the colors were right, and that people stood out, and that was that was it. That was pretty much an afterthought. But now, I think it's much more of a compliment to what's going on in the art. And then, in some respects, the colorist is just as not maybe not just as important as the penciler, but you know, I think it might be as important a job as the inker is. Like, you know, because inkers might be, I mean, they might be out of the equation somewhere down the line. People are start going all digital and just kind of sad. I, I love inking and I used to like inking other people's work, but that could be a job that's on the chopping block at some point just because it's might not be necessary. But the colorist has become much more, much more important to what the finished art looks like. It has much more impact on what the finished piece ends up being, I think, than it's much more than useful for sure. So um, er, early comics, yeah, very simple. You're right. The, the, the lot of, and I, I keep saying primary colors. I mean, it's just a lot mm -hmm. of simple. Yeah. Captain America's blue, Daredevil's red, yellow, then red, and Iron Man's gray for a while, and then <laughs> yellow for a while. Uh, very simple. You're right. It, it seems like, well, it, it's a simple. It's a. It's the last thing that needs to be done. We need to just get the color on there. And, and yeah, now, now there's so much more that can be done. And, and you, you have to have that artistic eye and to know with the shading and reflections and, and, and all of that. Um, it is, it's a you lot. You have to be able to interpret what the 
penciler and the inker have done about like what where reflected light might be coming from where you want to add dramatic lighting or because you know some of them put a lot of thought and time into where the shadows align and if you color something to where it doesn't quite work it's not gonna you can mess the whole thing up really you know ruin the mood of a page with coloring or you can make something that's okay great on the opposite end of the spectrum a colorist can really elevate mediocre work to a higher level or they can take great work and bring it down to a lower level <laughs> whereas i think that was not not even not not close to it. anyone could have colored a comic probably 40 years ago really i'm not sorry <laughs> colorists have, have I, I hope no one from coloring comics from 40 years ago is listening don't get mad at me <laughs> And there was there was occasional rush jobs at Marvel where if you had artistic talent and you could take a couple pages home with you and color them, you would do that and bring them in and, and you would so it was like it wasn't like I don't think it's to the level where it is now. Like I don't know if today they would just like you would color like Ron Garney's art just because they need to get a book out tomorrow or something. I don't think that would happen now. Spider-Man Adventures in 1995. That's different. Crank that out overnight. So, what are some um, what are some good examples of coloring? If 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 you have any, I know it might be. It's kind of a for, for me. That's kind of a obscure kind of question to think about a specific title. Elena, you mentioned the black and white or the monochrome titles that you really love. And I think it's funny because that those really stand out. Those are the ones that stick in your mind because they're different. And uh, Tim, you were saying that they, that, that's a different thing. People, mm -hmm. people will want that and you make it a, you make it a, the desirable, hard to get thing. Um, are there any, we don't talk about anything currently. Um, can you think of any examples of, of, of good colors? Um, that have stuck in your mind or, or, or bad stuff that has stuck in your mind? Um, currently or just from any, any time? Any time is fine. I guess a good colorist uh, that I really like is Dave Stewart. Once again, worked with Darwin Cook. Um, just a lot of texture. It almost looks like he did it traditional with the amount of like almost paper noise he put down when coloring which I think looks great I do it on my own work because I think if it looks too like shiny or like plasticky it you know doesn't feel like it's an actual object or anything so I definitely like his stuff it's not oversaturated can you, can you explain what paper noise is? Oh, um, so noise is basically strange to describe. Um, like the texture you would add to an overall thing, like even on Photoshop, there's a little window in a filter that says like add noise. And basically it separates, uh, like if you add a layer of solid blue, you would separate that into many little different pixels. Like one would be blue, one would be like, darker blue, white, and so until like from far away, it looks like that color, but then you get up close and it's just a bunch of little, little colors making up the one big color. 
So it's basically texture, just a fun way of saying it. Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, I, I, the, the first, I think, coloring I, I'd mentioned her before, but uh, Lynn Barley on The Dark Knight was some of the first coloring that I think I ever saw in a comic that stood out to me as being exceptional and just looked different than everything else. Um, the modern, uh, and also the same, the same era, John Higgins on uh, Watchmen was great. It was, it was, that was more traditional comic coloring, but his color palette that he used was really very interesting and cool. And modern, uh, modern guy, uh, Matt Hollingsworth, I really like a lot coloring now. I think his stuff is pretty awesome. Uh, he's, he's pretty, I wouldn't say he's understated, but he does, he uses, he doesn't oversaturate. He does, like his stuff works really well. And I, I like his, I, I like his, I like to look at his coloring a lot. So sorry, my cat is at the door. I have to quickly. <laughs> do what you gotta do. Um, <laughs> Jeremy, what what thought when you got the projects? And so, tell everybody what you're working on again right now for Silverline. Well, uh, right now I'm working on the one of the Kickstarter Bloodline. Yeah. I'm also working on uh, in the future. I'm working on pages for uh, Cray. Okay, so when you get these projects and you 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 look at the the inked art, what goes through your mind? What's the process you take to well, I- Go ahead. Well, one of the first things I try to do is figure out similar comics or, you know, animation or movies, whatever, mm-hmm. that are in the same type of genre or have a same type of storytelling style. Um, then I basically collect a bunch of reference images or screenshots from those specific mediums. And either I try to um, source colors from them or try to create a color palette around them. I mean, a very easy way to do this is um, like when I was doing the, when I started working on the Cray stuff, I got a bunch of, you know, like Tony the Barbarian ones, uh, Hercules, a bunch of those old fancy, uh, you know, magic and my fancy stuff. Yeah. I got those images. And then in Photoshop, you take the image into Photoshop, you go to image, you go to mode, and then basically you, um, change it to, I think it's the, uh, bitmap mode, it's like bitmap mode. Um, then basically once it's there, you can index the, uh, the, the, the image. By indexing it, you can go ahead and create a, um, a pre-made color palette based on that specific image. So instead of having to create your own color palette, like um, you know, put yellow here, black here, whatever, it basically, it basically takes every single color that's in that image and creates an entire color palette around that automatically. And then you, you, I can just import or export that and import that into the comic as I'm working. As a result, I now have the fancy color palette based on other previous works that I can just pull from. And make adjustments here and there as I'm going. <laughs> you you keep like blowing my mind with what you can do with uh when with with just color. It's so cool. Um, yeah, honestly, a lot of the stuff I learned from um, Ben Husen Husen his name wrong Husenker. Or something. I don't want to say his name wrong, but, but Ben Husenker. I'll say um, <laughs> he was a colorist at Archie um, and DC Comics and so forth. That was school he teaches at now, but he's at one of the schools in the Midwest, I think. Um, basically, I was able to get some um, private lessons with him at one point, where he told me a lot of these inside coloring tricks that he learned while doing digital coloring. Um, Elaine, I don't know if you heard my question. I asked uh, Jeremy, so he gets he gets a project, he gets a, an inked page, 
what are the steps you would take? Uh, what, what's next for you? So you get these pages. What, what happens next? And go ahead and tell everybody what you're currently working on to remind what you So I'm currently working on a new book that's going to come out really soon. I'm almost done with it. Um, White Devil. It's kind of like albino Conan the Barbarian. So that's the way I think I can describe it. It's fun. Um, uh, I guess when I, when I first get the pages, I go through, I make sure it's all like nothing's askew or too crazy. If I have any questions, I'll, you know, email editors, artists, whatnot. And then I go in and I separate the line art from the white. So it's, you know, I'm able to flat the comic. And then I flat it, <laughs> if this is, yeah, sorry. I flat the comic and then above that, I do a layer of shadow, which I tend to go with um, like blue, purple, like those darker, colder colors. Unless the image is closer, then I try to go with warmer colors in the shadows because that'll bring it closer because things that are um, cold colors go farther back because um, atmospheric perspective and then warmer colors stay up front. And then after that, I go over and I do highlight, which is another layer. And then I usually do a layer of tone between that, which would almost make it have that um, paper noise, which I said earlier. And then after that, I go in with a tiny bit of KO maybe. Um, it really matters what the comic or project is. And then I send it over after once the whole book is done. I usually don't send in page after page because that would be just like kind of a nightmare receiving like 20 separate emails with 20 separate JPEGs. Yes. So yeah, <laughs> that's kind of my process. Um, it really changes with like whatever artist I'm working with or if I'm working on my own stuff, then, you know, it's a different, like not too different of a process, but I always use Photoshop. I don't really like Clip Studio for flatting. And yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, um, and then uh, like, so the art, the artistic side of it. Uh, what what? Oh. No, no, no. You answered my question. Thank you. What what? Oh. <laughs> for both of you, uh, uh, anybody who does come, Jeremy, Dan, Elena, if you, um, what what? How much thought goes into that? And I understand sometimes I I don't know if you guys are so pressed for time that you know you gotta get it done. But you ever do, do you stop and think? Um, what's the what's the mood you want to set? What's the feeling? What are the tones that you want to have in the story? Yeah, um, there was this when the Bloodline comic I was doing. There's this one panel which was really great. It's like when he's like you know sort of like a shooting up the vampires or the brains exploding and everything. Yeah. But um, I didn't want colors straight on your know, colors. I wanted it to be something a little more you know impactful. Now that page had a lot of splat, black spot black on it. So what I did was I basically got rid of pretty much black on the entire, I basically did a color hole in all the black. And then I basically, using that, I created two layers of color. And the two colors, as a result, created this dynamic where, you know, you, there's like, you, I think it's like green or red. It's one of these things where um, the color stands out much more due to the um, the difference in the, uh, the, I can't pronounce it now, but it's just much more impactful as a result. And it goes along with the um, image other characters being, you know, shot and so forth. And you don't have to basically draw every single gory detail as a result. Yeah. 
Uh, Elena, did you have any? You can you can say if anybody. Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> no, nothing to add. Hey, shut up, Scott. Next topic, if you. <laughs> no, no. Um, my process. I usually tend to, like, it really matters what the tone or the environment they're in, and I usually base the entire color palette, clothing, uh, skin tone, everything off of that. So if it's like a nighttime scene. But if it's in a city, I might have more blues, but oranges as well, like to think about street lights. And I'm always thinking about complementary colors, what will look good, what will be too harsh. <laughs> it's a it's a balance. It's you know, yeah. And always keeping in mind not to oversaturate. So I, I it's a movie reference and I apologize, I know we're talking comic books, but um has everybody seen Oh Brother Where Art Thou? I love that movie. <laughs> Good. good. <laughs> that is, I think that's done in post production, and I don't know. But the it, that movie has a, has a that tan washed out hue to the whole thing, and um, I, that gives it a feeling, a tone of that of that depression dust bowl kind of. Uh, depressed south in the 1930s and I, I think it's really cool so when you see like behind the scenes of a movie like that where they don't have that effect you know, it doesn't look right um well in photoshop if you go to the saturation area there's actually a drop down menu we can change the um, colors on a page or certain where we select to sepia to like an old washed out photograph and it'll automatically create that type of mood for you if you need it yeah, and I, th I think it's to great effect if, if it's not overused. Um, Dan and I have been talking about how the colors for Steam Patriots are going to look, and it takes place uh, the end of the 1700s, the Revolutionary War, and we wanted, and we haven't settled on it. I don't know. Um, I'm going to defer to Dan. Uh, but we, we talked about how, like, we want the, the, the red of a British military coat to stand out, or we want the blue of George Washington's coat to stand out. And so we may have more muted uh, colors throughout the story where, where certain, so certain things will stand out. And then the effect of hey, there's going to be a little bit of a uh, the, the hero, Felix, has a, he, he can remember things really well, but he has to recall it. And so we want to have a, a difference in color for when he's using his, his superpower. Then when he's flashbacks to you have another achievements that it's obvious what is happening in the present and what's not. Yeah. So uh, a lot of different things to keep track. Of. There, there is a lot of things you can convey with color now that you couldn't do quite as easily back in the day. But like flashbacks, especially, I think there's a thing where you can very easily just bring your color palette down a bit or go for a monochrome sort of feel and you can instantly convey that this is not happening at the same time as he was in the previous panel. Mm. So, um, I, uh, sorry, I, I'm reading my, my notes here. Uh, what, do, what do the... The colors, what can they convey? And um, so the, the, the most apparent thing would be like the heroes versus villains and a certain color. Um, 
and, and is is that is there psychology behind that, or is that just because they decided? No, there is. Um, like there is like um yellow. Yellow's actually colored mostly reserved for heroes. Purple is for villains. Purple has poisonous, you know, poison and like um stuff like that. Bad omens for purple. Yellow, bright, happy. You obviously don't want your villain to be bright and happy. That's kind of contradictory. Right. Right. Yeah, I think if you look at uh, the early Marvel comics, the vast majority of the villains are purple and green, kind of Hulk's colors too. Which is what does that say about the Hulk? But like Doctor Doom is green. Uh, the Green Goblin is green and purple. Kang is green and purple. There's like just a whole whole slew of villains. If you start looking at them, they're you notice that there's a very similar color palette to uh, most. Of them. <laughs> and Jeremy is nice enough to uh, send me a. Um... A, a psychology chart which matches uh, the colors to their different emotions or what they do uh, for the reader. So I have that pulled up on stream now. So you got that up there? Cool. Because cool. I found a, a link on uh, just a quick psychologytoday.com. Uh, greens link to more creative thinking. This is this is not comic books related, but it's just the psychology of it. Um, red, um, of course, it, it's a it's a more attractive color. Uh, it's strength. Um, so, and then like uh, passion, like, you know, even just like food and strength um, of violet is a sophistication purple um, yellow in yellow is interesting. Cause I've got, um, I, I got another list here that puts a lot of sidekicks as using yellow. Um, but I guess well, Wolverine used to use yellow, right? And he has uh, yellow and, Blue initially, right? Yellow and blue. Yeah, like blue. a brown, brownish costume. I don't know blue. what he's wearing there. Blue is trustworthy, uh, trustworthiness. Um, and I think that's blue is the most popular favorite color. Um, I, I, other than maybe red. Um, those two are uh, very popular as favorite colors. So blue and red going together. Uh, um, and uh yeah gray gray is a uh, either a wise mentor um or on the other side of it maybe silver as a, a rich a rich villain uh, a wealthy villain who'd be wearing a gray suit or something like that um so there's a lot of psychology that goes into the color and that, that goes back to like our conversation for the, the previous uh, episodes where we talk about characters. You're telling, you're telling a lot instantly. The instantly the the reader, the audience knows uh, something. But what about uh, heroes that wear black? That's for you guys. Are most of those um, are most of the heroes black? The um, were. Not the vigilante ones, but more of the um, like uh, that term. Not like the, the you know, like the suit thing. Anti uh, the like an antihero or yes, yes, that's what I meant. Yeah. Reluctant hero. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting about that is like it can convey a lot. It can mm-hmm. it can foreshadow or it can like like in Star Wars in Return mm-hmm. of the Jedi when Luke shows up wearing black, it like it conveys a lot and it kind of foreshadows the conflict he's going to have. With the dark side later on, and in the first movie, he's all in white. This is kind of like a transition from being the naive young, you know, 
hero on his journey to someone that's confronting something very dark and dangerous that could consume him. And it yeah. kind of like, I think it prepares you as a viewer for maybe he is going to go to the dark side. You don't know, but, but I think that that's interesting that you brought that up that, you know, the good guy in black, but it can also be used to kind of foreshadow or, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself. Man. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, something also kind of happens all of that is if you do have a, uh, a character that either was an anti-hero or was a hero that went through a sudden change. And they might be getting a black costume to show that they're now concrete in their convictions, that they are a solid object. Whereas if the character is in a arc of change, their costume might be more white to show that either they are coming from a pure place or that they are able to receive. Because uh, what you can paint on white, you can't paint on black. They're, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, one of my favorite runs of um, X-Men was uh, spoilers for a run five years ago. Uh, Xavier's dead um, and Magneto is the leader of the X-Men. Uh, and he he bounces between an all-white garb and an all-black garb when he's questioning his position as their leader, uh, what it means to be a mutant or a human uh, and what is forgiveness play in his position that he's in now. And so he'll go from be- like seasons of conviction to seasons of doubt, and he'll go from black to white, uh, respectively. What it also reminds me of is um, a lot of these also are visual cues from like old like um, shows and stuff, like um, cowboy westerns. Yeah, the mm-hmm. black with the black costume. Mm-hmm. But another interesting thing about that, you know, coming for second year, um, in those shows, the uh, good guys would never exit the screen um, to the left. They always go to the right when coming onto the screen. That's because you always have to chase after the villains. So there's certain visual cues they can use in comics that automatically you know, identify who is the bad guy and who's the good guy. Yeah, that's, it's very interesting because it, it it's that psychology side of like that's something we we I don't understand. Like why why does red why does why do we have a physical psych or psycho even psychological reaction to a color? But they understood that. They knew that with 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 early films and and uh, and and then comics, we we understand it. It's there. We may not be able to explain it, but we can use it for for storytelling to to convey meaning and feeling. Um, what about villains that you uh, Tim? You mentioned Magneto wearing white, right? Um, there are other villains that wear white. White Queen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Say that again. Gentleman Ghost. What? What? what what's the meaning with uh, with a villain wearing white? He's a ghost, so he's white. <laughs> <laughs> Solid. <laughs> okay. All right. You can't have a purple ghost, I guess. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things for it's ages of mythology built into dumb brain so <laughs> just like, it's a ghost it's white naturally yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> what about um but um uh, i'd say also to your, your point scott um uh typically white also has a lot of uh religious iconography with it and so you see that a lot in um uh, uh art comes kind of from a uh, particularly japanese 
influence. Um, so we have our own ideas of white and purity. So something like the purifiers and X-Men again, because I am an X-Men nerd, uh, well, we're all white because they're the religious sanctified group and Japanese culture, white and black are kind of flipped. Um, so something is the, uh, embodiment of the coming of the afterlife. They'll wear white because that is the absence of everything. So they're coming to remove. I learned about that in a 30 rock episode. <laughs> Cause like Liz Lemon, she bought like a wedding dress mm-hmm. and then everyone thought she was going to a Korean funeral. It was so weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact. 30 Rock is gold. I love that show. So well written. <laughs> so I I love I love that 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 we have these discussions um because comic books and and the visual medium it, there's so much more to it, so much thought that goes into it. And yes, you've got uh silly comics that are just you know uh, the, the the movie equivalent of a of a popcorn you know blockbuster, but but there's so much so much that has to go into uh, the thought behind what's the villain going to look like, what's the background going to look like, what's the hero going to look like, and what's it going to convey with the fewest amount with the least amount of effort for uh, for the, the the consumer for the the, or the reader. It's so much more intelligent when you really just take a second to, to think about what is going into it to uh, to make it a, an amazing story and have everything going on in the background too of your mind that uh, a lot of people don't stop and think about that, which is okay, fine. If they're entertained by a story, great. But when you think about the psychology behind it, it, it's it's so interesting. I love it. Um, and uh, some neutral characters. I don't know the the sidekicks, um, Earth tones, um, oranges. <laughs> I don't know who's who's orange out there. That's a great question. It says like uh, crossing guard. Like, yeah. I, uh... <laughs> Colossus is so Colossus' his traditional costume was yellow and red, kind of two of our hero characters, yeah. And then when he's paired with Cable, he switches out to black and orange. It's like a same, similar like relationship, but it's much more dulled down. He's not spotlight. Then you got Aquaman. Yep. (laughs) Aquaman. Forget about Aquaman. Aquaman, okay. Uh, and I wonder, like, uh, what what was the? I like in the in the Iron Man movie, Tony Stark picks his Iron Man colors because of his hot rod, right? And mm-hmm. that to be to be showy. But what was the what was the thought process behind that in the, the comic book in the sixties? Is was just because red means hero and and bright, and yellow goes with it. You, I think a lot of it's you're, you're picking, you know, complementary colors, colors that look good together. So yeah. I don't know. The, I guess he went from the gray to the gold. Gold. And then I guess the next step was just to add red to that and just make him look a little more heroic instead of 
kind of dumpy looking. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, to make it more heroic, I guess you add red because it is it's a bold, vibrant color. But I, I, I think some of, I mean, I, I wonder, I'm sure a lot of thought, I wonder how much thought was given to the colors some of the characters when the black. Obviously, with Captain America, you give him a lot of thought, but like, like when you're designing when Ditko, I wonder if Ditko or Kirby designed Spider-Man's color costume. I know, I know that Kirby drew Amazing Fantasy 15's cover, but Ditko did all the interiors. I don't, I don't know who. Does anyone know who designed Spider-Man the costume? Yeah, I bet it was Steve Ditko. Yeah, I think it would be too. But I wonder, like, if he had colors in mind when he was, you know, drawing the webbing of the. Or if it was just something I don't, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd be interested to know, like when you're designing. So a lot of times, if you're designing a character, if you're drawing, you're not necessarily thinking a ton about it, colors, depending on the character. You're making a costume that looks cool. And so would they? Out. You think they would have avoided black for him to, um, so he wouldn't seem evil? Because blue and blue and red for a spider. I mean, yeah, it's an odd choice, right? Yeah, I don't know. yeah, no. <laughs> but it's color. Like everything was cut, like you said, primary colors were so prevalent in that era of comic books, really. There's no one that's not primary colors. Who it is, really. Even if it would make sense for them to be like black or a dark color, they were still more colorful than that. Like the Phantom Stranger or the Spectre. You know, Spectre's like green and white, and he's wearing green underwear. So it's kind of Um, and then what about, uh, what about colors for, uh, for backgrounds and scenery, uh, from, from our, from our colorists, uh, how, how much thought do you put into that? Um, does that, is that on par with the, the characters in the scene? Well, I think I have to be a little more, even more careful with the backgrounds because you definitely don't want the backgrounds to overshadow the characters. Yeah. It has to be dulled down. But it also can't be like too crazy down or else your characters are just gonna stand out too much. Um, it really, like it all has to matter what will be complementary to the characters' costumes or if you're basing the costumes off the environment. Um, let's say they're at the beach. You can't just have the sand be straight up yellow or else it'll look like they're walking on nacho cheese. You gotta have like a good balance of every color and making sure it you know conveys the direct emotion also because if you could do a scene at the beach where things are supposed to be unhappy or scary like uh i guess movie references um jaws you know you got blood in the water it's a bright bright red it's not like a dull red it shows you know there is violence happening and so that also has to be shown in the environment. There's so many bright colors on that beach scene, but like not a lot of calmness in the colors. So it's important to have the background colors match the emotion and like match the story as well. Also, um, this is for the, I guess the artist side, not the color side, but when creating the page, depending on the type of character you're using, you want to be very careful of how the character is placed on the page. I got one anecdote I got from uh, the colors dimension working on the Sonic, on the Archie, on the Sonic comic. Sonic is blue. 
lot of scenes take place outside, meaning a lot of blue skies. And this is water, blue. So trying to color a blue character when the entire environment is blue is very annoying. <laughs> so you have to be careful when you're know, laying out a page that if your character happens to have these colors which are found in the environment, you want to at least place them in a spot where there's something blocking them in the environment, like, like a middle area there. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I, I like that. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go back to the psychology here. Uh, this is uh, sent to me in a, uh, on a, on a, a text from uh, my uh, handsomer brother, Stephen, uh, the handsomer Wakefield child. Uh, he got the Disney psycho- the color psychology of Disney characters. It's interesting. Strength, energy, and determination. You have uh, uh, Jafar, Gaston in red. Uh, and the, the purple is nobility and luxury, um, Maleficent, uh, let's see, I don't know who, oh, Governor Ratcliffe from Pocahontas in the, in the purples. In the blue, trust, loyalty, confidence, stability, Cinderella, Elsa, uh, greens are safety and endurance, you've got Peter Pan, uh, Mulan, in the yellows, joy, happiness, intellect, uh, uh, Woody, Wally. Um, I would put joy in there too, right? <laughs> Why haven't we talked about uh, uh, what's the name of that movie? Um, Inside Out. Inside Out. Thank you. Yes, the uh, the Pixar. What if emotions had emotions? Um, this must be before. I'm not seeing any Inside Out uh, characters. But the, uh, the the gray and the black, elegance, formality, death, evil. Uh, you've got a yeah, a hunchback, uh, Claude Frollo. Frollo is that the uh, yeah. Notre Dame? Yeah, uh, Captain Gontu from Lilo and Stitch, Ursula. So it's all very interesting. Of course, it's Disney, and they put zillions of dollars into thought of uh, of how to. Uh, portray their characters. So I don't know where he found it, but you could find a, it's called the color psychology of Disney characters. Uh, Once again, we've determined that comic books are the greatest art form. The most thought goes into it. The psychology, the smartest and most creative and skilled people going to put their efforts into creating comic books. It is not, as we learned tonight, like coloring uh, a coloring book there is uh so much more that goes into it into the into the psychology into the levels of 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 color um grading and and the skill level that goes into making an amazing comic book about rounding out the visual art that is a comic book so let's wrap up we can say good night uh and we will go through who has been on our show this evening? First of all, thank you all to our experts for keeping the show going. Uh, as I said at the beginning, I am ignorant of this part of the process, and you have learned me good. So I'll go first. So I'm the, the first that you forget. My name is Scott Wakefield. I've been your host. I am creating and co creating with my buddy Rory. Rory, you're still out there. I love you. Hugs and kisses. We're creating Steam Patriots. It is at Steam Patriots on Facebook and Instagram. 
Uh, I'm also Scott Wakefield, Scott M. Wakefield, I believe, on LinkedIn, if you want to connect with me there. Um, and uh, check out my projects that should be coming um, from Silverline uh, in the near future. So let's go. I'll go reverso. Mr. C. Michael Landing down there at the end of my list. Tell us who you are and where they can find you and how they can support you. Um, C. Michael Landing. I'm currently working on a project called Rejects with our uh, editor, Roland Mann. Uh, the best place to find me is on Facebook at the Art of C. Michael Landing. Thank you, sir. Alex? Um, my name is Alex Gallimore. You can pretty much find me on all of the different social medias by just typing my name in, Alex Gallimore. Um, most likely the only artist with that name. Um, I'm currently working on uh, Cat and Mouse issue three. I'm about to finish it up and then uh, be working on issue four and then up. Another project down the line with Silverline. All right, thank you, Alex. Elena? Oh, hi, I'm Elena. Um, I'm on Instagram at, oh wait, I should say what book I'm working on. Uh, I'm the colorist for um, White Devil, which is a book coming out soon by Silverline. Um, you can find me on Instagram at E.H. Morton. You can find me on Twitter at Agent Morton. And you can find me on LinkedIn at Elena Morton. And I think that's all the social media I have. Oh, Facebook, but don't find me there. <laughs> a lot of high school photos. From um, yeah. Thank you, Elena. Tim TK. I am Tim TK, the associate editor here. I do internet stuff, and we lost <laughs> video. Okay, let me. I do all of our internet stuff. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Liker at TimTKRider, uh, where I will probably be live-tweeting San Diego Comic-Con at home this year. Uh, I am on TikTok at TimDoesn'tTikTok, where I post bad TikToks. And I'm on Twitter. What? <laughs> Is there a good TikTok out there? <laughs> uh, there's some quality ones. Uh, not mine, though. Uh, and I'm on twitch here at agro bacon where i'll be live later tonight playing destiny 2 mr dan hosek um dan hosek i'm working with scott on steam patriots for silverline coloring and lettering uh, i guess he's telling me now to make sure i get the channel so i should thank it on that um i worked on a comic called uh file 13 i think you can find that on facebook at what is file 13 um, the website isn't up right now, so I'm just working to get that back up, and hopefully I can get back on track with that, too. I'd like to revisit that world. All right, and Jeremy, go ahead. Hey, I am Jeremy Kahn. I buy the colors for the Bloodline comic currently on Kickstarter, and um, I'm now working on Prey, coming out some point in the future. You can find me on Twitter at Jeremy M. Kahn, and... Also, I have a YouTube channel called AP Joy Paint. And um, there, I upload a bunch of videos of myself coloring pages and illustrations. Today, I actually just uploaded uh, me coloring page seven of issue four of Prey, actually. Excellent. And that is perfectly relevant to our conversation tonight. Jeremy, that's awesome. Uh, all of you, I really, really, really appreciate your input on this topic. It is very cool, very important, uh, integral to the creation of comic books. It's been fantastic learning from you. Everyone, remember, make mine silver line, and good night.
to everybody. Have a great night. Thank you for listening to the Silverline Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We know we ramble sometimes, but we have fun. And after all, isn't that what comics are all about? We hope you'll follow us on all our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, LinkedIn, Reddit, MeWe, Gab, and whatever new thing pops up between now and the time you listen to us. Please like, follow, share, and remember, make mine Silverline.